Hello, may I welcome you to episode 77 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. In this episode, we discover how my guest began within the industry back in 1969, even though he was born into a family of teachers. We discuss his challenges, what he would change from his moving past, his high points, what changes he would make to the industry, the advice he would give starting out again, his predictions for the next five years, and what he does outside of the workplace. And as always, we end moving matters with a funny moving story. In fact, two, one regarding his job interview and the other, his moustache. My guest this episode is industry veteran and one of the industry's Mr. Nice Guys, Chris Weymouth. Enjoy. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to Moving Matters. How are you this morning? Thank you, Colin. Yes, good morning to you. Very well indeed. Thank you. Can you tell everybody about yourself and the length of time within the industry? Yes, sure. I'll start at the beginning. I um, I grew up in a family of uh, teachers up in Northamptonshire, although I was born in Kent. And I studied languages. And so when it came to finding a job, the natural thing seemed to be something where I could use those languages. And uh, there was a local removals and export packing company, Walkers of Northampton, just a few miles away from home, and they were advertising. I went along there and got the job. So that was really my launch into the industry. And it was a fantastic grounding because the part that um, to which I was attached as I think warehouse clerk or administrator, whatever I was called, we were dealing with the US Air Force, which was all over the country at that time. There was something like 20 odd bases and we represented a dozen or maybe it's 14 us van lines nice. we were moving the personnel around so it was a very very active business and i was i was pretty much thrown in at the deep end really and i got got involved i love the physical side of the business too so if the crews ran out of materials i'd be sent out with extra materials and i'd help them with a bit of packing then I started doing surveys, and that was quite fun because some of the, particularly the base at Upper Hayford, down the Cotswolds, the officers would be in outlying villages, and so I could pop around those, do eight, ten surveys a day, something like that, up to East Anglia, covering the bases up there. So I got a really thorough grounding in the industry, and driving the forklift trucks, no certificates of competence in those days, you know, we're talking <laughs> 1969 to 73, I was, I was there. And towards the end of the time there, they'd, they'd opened another branch near Bedford and um, there was a national dock strike. So we had a massive backlog of shipments all in, in lift fans. I got involved in driving the trucks and, and so on. And then to the office, and I, I suppose I didn't really realise at the time, but that gave me a, a really good basis for going forward into management, understanding what the guys went through and how to do it and so on. 
And then um, one day, there was a guy I'd been working with, Jim Bell, who was actually manager of the Bedford branch. He'd gone up to London and uh, he called me and said uh, there was a vacancy in the firm he was he was with. Would I be interested? Well, yeah, this sounds good. And that was the fledgling American overseas shipping, which later became Amatrans. All right. Yeah, yeah. Run by Frank Grace, Peter Stevens, Dick O'Brien. And um, I joined them as traffic manager. Well, I was responsible for basically for exports to the US. And this was a very different part of the industry because it was all high-end commercial moving rather than military. Huge contracts with all the, the multinationals, particularly the Americans, through Frank Grace's connections and so on. Office-based, so I didn't see much of the physical operation any longer, but very, very successful. And I honed my skills in export and shipping and forwarding and so on. So that was 73 to 78, I think, something like that. Then I went on and joined what was called Navtrans, which was the London operation of North American van lines. Right, yeah. And I joined in a similar capacity. I think it was operations manager. So I did get more involved again in the physical side. And it's quite challenging because the workforce wasn't unionized, but there was one one guy who thought it was, thought it should be, and um, he could be up to all sorts of tricks to throw a spanner in the works. <laughs> uh, taking the taking the lenses off rear lights of trucks or oh, uh, disabling something or other, oh, can't go out today, Gov, and, and so on and so forth. And there are a few, few little tricks going on. He was selling some materials to the contractors and so on, so... When I started doing physical stock checks of the materials, that, that soon rumbled him. And um, we sort of squared up, and um, that taught me a lesson in, in man management, I suppose. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a good time. I then um, went on when the then manager, Ian Nicholson, moved to the, the head office in the States, and I took over management of, of the operation there. And um, we expanded it from just international moving into electronics, stock holding and distribution. We had contracts with Digital and Hewlett-Packard. Oh, wow. Opened a new branch out at Winnish near Reading. Yeah. And we also bought a, an air freight company. So we diversified and, and had three arms to the operation. And over the time I was there, I think we something like, we certainly tripled, if not quadrupled, the, the turnover and the profitability. And it was great to be part of this huge American billion-dollar operation, including trips to, to head office in Indiana once or twice a year. just felt good to be part of that, that massive machine. Then, um, where are we getting to? Late 80s. I got a call from Paul Evans at TransEuro, whom I'd met a few times before, and we got mm. on very well. In fact, he'd helped me and several US-owned companies. We weren't allowed to be part of BAR at that time. Foreign-owned companies were, were not eligible for membership. But Paul had backed us, and we at North American, along with Global and Four Winds and Interdean, 
had managed to become members. So I knew Paul. And uh, he confided in, in me that his his partner, Richard Levine, with whom he'd founded Transura, was going to be moving on and he needed someone to take over the administrative role at Transura. He was actually splitting it with a finance director and an admin director. So um, I joined there. It was already a very successful company, extremely successful. Been going, what, about four or five years by then, I suppose. But there was still that pioneering spirit. And under Paul's energetic leadership and, and his sort of family approach to everything, it, it was just a fabulous time. I was there, I think it was a total of 12 years. And uh, that was undoubtedly the highlight of my career, particularly building the automated fire-safe warehouse. Oh, that place is amazing. It's, uh, it was brilliant. Stuart Peck was the operations director, Dave Borum, operations manager. So they basically specified what, what they wanted. Paul was obviously the driving force behind the whole thing. And, and I was very proud to be the, the, the project manager for the, for the construction. I'd, I'd done office extensions and things like that before, but this was a £14 million project with the 1800 containers and the overhead cranes and four levels of underground car park underneath and so on and we opened it 1997 at the time that the feedy conference was in london so we had these massive opening ceremonies yeah with the uh, du soleil in the warehouse and, and so on it was uh, it was a very very proud time wonderful wonderful and 14 million doesn't sound that much, but in 1995 <laughs> to 7, around that area, it's a lot of money. It was, it was always a lot of money to Paul Evans. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was uh, an incredibly shrewd guy. When, when he was negotiating the contract, I sat in on discussions with, with several contractors, and we ended up with Amy. To say he was twisting the twisting his finger around that the guy would be perhaps overdoing it, but um, it was <laughs> amazing um, how he could negotiate. And then on the back of that, I did my first presentation at a BAR conference, which was in Brighton with a, with a PowerPoint all about the project and so yeah. on. And it was, you know, it, was a, it was an honor to be able to front that and to talk to people about it afterwards. Yeah, great, very, very happy times. But like many things, Nothing is forever, and uh, eventually the merger or takeover, as it was really, with, with Amatrans took place, and it became Team, which was, I think it's Stuart Peck who thought of that that name, because that was actually a combination of TE for TransEuro and AM for Amatrans, so it became yeah. Team Relocations, funded by Deutsche Bank. And I remember the first time... Several of their guys came along to, to meet us and we'd all gone out and bought new suits and shone our shoes and new ties and all the rest <laughs> of it. And these chaps came along in their denim shirts and chinos, you know, as as was the way with the top bankers and so on. But it, it wasn't to last and I left within two years of, of that takeover. Wow. Partly, um, it's very sad. I remember within a few few weeks of the, the takeover, of course, there had to be rationalisation. Everybody understands that. But among my many, many admin roles was HR. And 
I personally had to make something like 30 grassroots guys redundant exactly this time of year, just before Christmas. Wow. Not a good time to make anyone redundant, but just Absolutely. before Christmas is even Grown worse. Salt of the earth. Yeah, it was, it was tough. So I, um, I got out and uh, thought, well, what to do next? And took a few weeks off. We went round the world, actually. And I then interviewed for several bursa jobs because, um, say, my family was all in education, my parents, my sister, my two aunts. And I used to say, when I was asked at these interviews, well, Mr. Weymouth, you've had a successful business career. Why, what are you doing coming to a school? And I would say, well, all families in education and the black sheep of the family, you know. <laughs> but um, one one job was in Biddeford down in Devon, another one was Ipswich, and I, I just didn't want to up roots, up sticks to that extent. And somebody said, well, you've done IT. That was a big part of my work at TransEuro. What about consultancy? So I actually then joined uh, Robbie Wogan at Move Assist. Yeah. As in sort of dual role, general manager of the company, but also project manager for the OmniConnect project, which was to hook up all 200 odd Omni members and give them a system through which they could create bookings send shipment data, waybills, et cetera, all electronically, all done through XML. Almost child's play these days, but in, in those days, it was fairly groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. It was a very, very, very traumatic project and um, extremely stressful for everybody in, in the company. But eventually we did a demo at, uh, at an Omni convention. But it seemed that the members really weren't ready for it. So... Sadly, it was never taken up. So it was ahead of its time then, Chris? You could probably say that, Colin. Yes, yes, I think so. And of course, now we can do virtually everything via the net. If you've got yeah. a web interface. But um, it was very complex. And one of the challenges was that some of the more established companies, and we had either four or five around the world who were acting as guinea pigs or test beds for us, of course, they had their own legacy systems. So the yeah. integration of their legacy systems with this new XML and the conversions that were necessary for each of them to talk to their own desktop systems, it was very, very tricky. And some language barriers as well. But um, yeah, I, I don't look, look back too happily on that time. So um, then... Um, uh, I moved on from there and I had a call from our old friend, David Trenchard. Good old David. <laughs> there was, uh, uh, QSS was um, pretty much a fledgling then. I think it was only a year or 18 months old, something like that. The original moving standard, BSEN 12522, had been launched and QSS was doing the auditing for it. And I think there were something like 90 odd clients who'd taken it up, including the Britannia family, but they needed someone to head it up because the, the then person, I think she was on extended leave. So I took it on and very quickly got involved with not, not just the QSS side of things, but VAR inspections, which of course had been going on for quite some time, but there wasn't any great 
control or analysis or follow-up. They were just assorted spreadsheets. Never did they talk to each other. So having done the reason man of database work in the past, I uh, started about this and I set up what we called BITS, B-I-T-S, B-A-R, Inspection Tracking System. Yeah. And over the 14 years that I was there running QSS, that grew way, way, way out beyond just inspection tracking. And nowadays it is the system that runs really the whole of BAR, all the membership and QSS, all yeah. the training facilities, the courses and so on. And um, it's pretty successful because it's grown bit by bit. It It's a bit cumbersome, a bit clumsy in parts. And if or when somebody takes over from me, and lifts the bonnet, and, oh my goodness, what a mess. But it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've rambled on a bit, but that was, uh, in a nutshell, that, that was my career, the various steps I took, starting in 1967, 69, I beg your pardon. And there we are. So you are still involved in the industry, but can you tell everyone what it is you do today? Yes, I am. Um... I really have, I suppose I wear two hats in that I'm still involved in developing and administering the BITS database that I just spoke about. And that comes and goes. It's just when somebody needs a new feature or just wants something added to it, then I'll deal with that. I also have been very involved with quality standards, obviously through QSS, and I took up a position as a BSI, British Standards Institution, committee chairman, all seven, eight years ago, I suppose, after right. David. And um, for the last two, two and a half years, I've been reworking that original standard, 12522, which was quite cumbersome. It's written in 1998 in two parts, quite flowery, elaborate language. So I've cleaned it up i think dramatically it's now in one single part more modern language incorporated electronic media health and safety a number of other features just to bring it up to date so that's been a pretty big project it's now out for voting among the european community because it is a european standard but hopefully it will get approval and in the early months of next year hopefully that new version will be released so between that and, and the database work, that keeps me occupied enough in semi-retirement. And the one other thing I do with BAR is that with photography as a, as a serious hobby, very kindly, Ian Sturd asked me a couple of years ago if I would I'd be happy to do the photography at the conferences, which I, which I love doing. And it's an opportunity to meet up with old friends, take some embarrassing pictures late at night at the bar. <laughs> I don't know. I think the more embarrassing pictures are the ones in the morning after the bath. (laughs) Well, that means getting up in time to do them. (laughs) So um, that's where I am now in terms of the industry. But um, I also, I've I've got a lot of other interests in the little village where I'm in Buckinghamshire. I run a community cinema. So we do two or three films a month. We can seat 60. And it's just a lovely thing to do because particularly for the older people who can't or don't want to go off to a a cinema in a nearby town, 
They can just come into our village hall. We've got high quality equipment. We have a bar, we have a lovely atmosphere. I run the show. I also do all the sort of preparation work and print the posters and run the website and the booking system and so on. So that takes quite a bit of my time. So never a dull moment, really, these days. <laughs> so the BSEN12522. Yep. Controversial question now, Chris. Oh. Can you ever see that being part of BAL membership? Hmm. Because I would love it to be part of BAR membership. Would you? Well, that's, that's, that's encouraging. The world moves in that direction. What's it got to be at least five, maybe seven or eight years yeah, ago? Yeah, many years ago. Personally, I felt at the time, although obviously I, I was basically in favour, I don't think it was put out the right way. I think the proposal could have been put across rather better. Nonetheless, what has happened in recent years is that the criteria, code of conduct, the AR rules, yeah. have all been fine-tuned and developed to the extent when actually when you look at the standard and you look at the, the AR requirements, they're not that far apart. No, exactly. Uh, uh, and for those members who say, oh, no, you know, we shouldn't have the standard, um, I think I think they are slightly missing the point. It's not that onerous, and I always, as I always used to say when I was heading QSS and obviously trying to get people to take up the standards, I would say it's it, it's actually a very very worthwhile exercise. It, it when you do it for the first time, it makes you turn the company inside out. You get a team of people involved in how you do things. You streamline everything. Yes, there is a some expense in doing it and purchasing the standard and then having the annual audits, but it's not horrendous. But to go back to your question, I don't know. I still rather doubt it, Colin. Maybe in time. I'd love to know why removers don't want to go for it. The many companies that I go to, I generally try and sell the, the BSE and 12522 because they are so close to it anyway that it's only a couple of changes that they're going to have to make in order to obtain it. Yeah, It's not yeah. big changes. No, no. Um, well, it's an interesting thing because for smaller companies, there is an attraction and some do go for it because it gives them some credibility, if you like. Yeah. On the other hand, some of the smaller ones are perhaps frightened off scared of it i i do hope actually that the new version if and when it comes out will be more attractive because it yeah. it, it is simpler instead of having to get their heads around the two parts and how they work together and some of the cumbersome flurry old elaborate language it's an easier read so that may help but i, I think particularly smaller companies have been frightened by it in the past so yeah that, that that may change we may get a better better take up time will tell absolutely well let's hope more people do take it up and if anybody is listening and wants to go for it i highly encourage you to it's yes a brilliant standard. Absolutely. Yeah. if anything it's a manual on how your own business runs that's the main thing well totally and as i've said to, to many a, an applicant and these are generally, typically, the, the business owners or senior managers. And I've said, if, if you've been running for a few years now, 
and the business has grown, you'll think, oh, yes, we know how we do this, we know how we do that. But actually, new little processes and habits will have crept in. And when you turn everything inside out, upside down, look at how you do things, you will find duplication, you'll find inefficiencies, you'll find people doing things in different ways. So adopting a system like that, which is, as you say, basically a rule book on how to do things, but it's not it's not prescriptive. It's how your company interprets the standard and how you yeah. individually do those things. So yeah. it's not necessarily going to make you completely change the way you do things, but simply make them more efficient, more consistent, and your staff will take ownership of them as well, understanding yeah. much better why that's the right way to do things. And everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, totally, totally. That's it in a nutshell, yeah. So what challenges have you had to overcome then, Chris? Um, personally, in my early days, I lacked self-confidence and I got into management fairly, fairly quickly for one reason or another. But I did find it difficult communicating with people, interviewing, not to mention anything verging on the disciplinary. I was probably even more nervous than the than the victims, to be honest, in, in the <laughs> early days. And I can't quite remember when I when I got over that. But I, I remember well, public speaking was a, an absolute no-no in, in the early days. And when I was at American Overseas, we had an opportunity which our marketing manager had grabbed. There'd been a couple of collapses. Seven Seas and I forget the other company had gone bust, leaving families stranded, shipments in mid-ocean, etc. So the very first, well, it was actually called the Customer Guarantee Scheme, CGI scheme, the forerunner of IMI, was introduced, a bit like the ABTA bond, ABTA guarantee, etc. Yeah. And... We actually got the opportunity to underwrite the first certificate and we were to give a presentation at the London Press Centre. And because I was the operations guy, it fell to me to give this address. And um, I was driven down there. I don't think we actually had to come to a stop for me to um, be ill on the way, but it was close on that. I, I was <laughs> so, so, so nervous. But there was a turning point, and then that presentation at the BAR conference with the with the warehouse in Brighton. Yeah, that was another point. I remember getting up there on the podium, and I was following the keynote speaker was Trevor Bayliss, the chap who did the the wind up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Radio. Yeah, and we were in the green room together, and he was a character, and he sort of got me relaxed, and I got on the the podium and the spotlights and a couple of hundred people all staring at me. I thought, little old me, you know. And I got a feeling of power from it. Yeah. So for anyone that is nervous, not necessarily about public speaking, but anything where you just don't have that confidence, it will come and there'll, there'll be a, a sort of a watershed moment when you grasp it and you get through it and you think, oh, how stupid was, was that <laughs> when you look back on it? But that was... On a personal basis, that was uh, that was a challenge. Yeah, but in in business in the industry, I think one of the 
difficulties I faced from time to time was dealing with the, what shall I say, the less ethical side of, of the business. I may have missed some opportunities by being Mr. Honest, Mr. Mr. Ethical, etc. But I've, I've never done brown envelope deals and I've been invited to join in some of them. Um, and sometimes it was tempting, challenging, and mm. I'd watch those that were involved in underhand practices doing quite well out of them. But I, I stayed true to my my own personal rules, and um, I've always slept at night and felt the better for it. Good. As in any industry, there are, the, there are those elements where... Um, yeah, not everything is quite as it should be. I remember I had a little book as a child, and um, it was a, not a nursery rhyme, but it was a little story with characters in it. And there was one lady called Mrs. Do As You Would Be Done By. Strange <laughs> mouthful of a name, but that's kind of been my motto in life. Yeah. Do as you would be done by, treat the other guy decently, and you'll, you'll reap the rewards of that. You were clearly brought up well, Chris, with high morals. Well, father was a headmaster. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could change anything from your moving past, what would it be? Ooh. To take some of those dodgy deals. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, very, very little. I really have to think about that one because. Yeah, there were difficult times from time to time, but I always came out of it at least okay. And having learnt from whatever experience that there'd been, so no, a long think about it, but very little, if anything, Colin. No regrets, as the as they say. No, oh, good. It's becoming a popular answer to that question. In all honesty. Good, it just good. means that the industry is a great industry to work with. Because yes. If there is anything that's difficult, we learn from it. If we've done something wrong, we learn from it. So yeah. just goes to show it's a great industry to work in. And I think the other thing that helps with that is the camaraderie. Oh, absolutely. There's always yeah. somebody, not, not exactly a shoulder to cry on. Yeah. But You're so right. Being competitors, rivals, there's always somebody with whom you can, and what's the old thing? A problem shared is a problem solved, or whatever they, or they half, say. Or yeah, yeah. Half, yes, yeah. So, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that one of your high points was Transuro and Paul Evans. Do you have any more highlights of being in the industry? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> I've loved it, um, and that, yes, there have been many. Transuro was undoubtedly the the peak of my career and it was just a fabulous place to be and so proud to represent it mm. one of the things i did there as well as the warehouse we set up our own study tours so a dozen people from all around the company and um, it had branches in paris and brussels and, and so on so people were picked it was a warehouseman there was a girl from accounts in paris and so on. People who wouldn't normally travel. Yeah. And because HR was one of my admin roles, 
I was the shepherd for the study tour. So we did this twice, two years apart. And I took a gang of, of a dozen over to the States and we visited in a week, every day, a different agent with whom we were working. Yeah. And these, these were people with whom we had very strong relationships, the, the, the likes of Moves International and what was then American International, now Aries, Pildra, Grable, and so on. Yeah. I mean, very hard work because we were getting the, you know, the dawn flights every day and going to another city and then meeting up with people, taken out to dinner every night, late night, and then up again next morning. But it was just fabulous, the heartwarming relationships. And to see people, and there'd be a couple of moving coordinators who would meet up with their opposite numbers. And in those days, you know, there wasn't Zoom and yeah. fax and telex and whatever. But to meet face-to-face -face and so on, it, it was just absolutely lovely. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed those. And also for people in the in the company in different positions to see how companies operate in, again, different positions. Totally, totally. And, and that was really, well, the concept was, as the name suggests, study tours. Yeah. And when we got back, all the participants had to do a, a write-up and to put forward any recommendations for best practice that they'd learnt, yeah. et cetera. And there was a little award i forget what it was for the best uh, diary or log so that was that was terrific prior to that when i was at north american and when we we bought the air freight company that little company was four guys who had been british airways cargo salespeople, very successful salespeople, right. and then they'd set up a little iata agency themselves and that's what we wanted as north american they had it in the States, but we didn't in the UK. So we bought them. And um, at that time, I was due to go off to Fort Wayne, Indiana, North American head office. And these guys managed to get me a flight on Concord. Oh, wow. <laughs> I actually paid the difference between the normal flight cost. Yeah. We would have gone business normally, paid by the company. So I paid the difference between business and Concord and took my wife, who, who was American. So, yeah, that was a scheduled flight. David Frost and uh, I can't remember who else was on it. It was just mind-blowing. We were both in love with that machine. And for a while, we lived at Yakeley, just outside Camberley, which was yeah, right yeah. the flight path. And this silver dart used to come in floating in the even summer evenings. And, yeah, we've been up there. So. No pun intended. That was definitely a high point of uh, of an amazing aircraft that should still be in the air today, personally. Mm. But have you been to see the one at the Brooklyn's Museum? Chris? I have. In mm. fact, there was some years ago now. There was a Met Area. I think it was a Met Area meeting at at Brooklyn's. Yeah, kind of a little little jolly. So we went all around the museum and on Concord and uh, the other aircraft they've got there. Yeah, amazing place. I think I might be right in saying, isn't that the one that's never done a commercial flight? Is it? Hmm. I think it was more of their test one. Right. I don't think it ever did a commercial flight. It could be wrong, but I'll double check that. Hmm. Hmm. So what one thing would you change within the moving industry? Um, 
I would love to see, I mean, it's starting to happen in management and sales, but I would love to see more women involved in the front line, if you like. Yeah. And I think you're right. It is definitely changing. Yes. There are more females in, in positions now of management. There are more females turning up to conferences and it's yeah. great to see. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm talking out doing the packing. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes muscle power can be a, a bit of a challenge, but in general, the, the customer, it will usually be the lady of the house or yeah. maybe the, the couple. And I know there have been several attempts, and maybe there are still some running successfully, I'm not sure, but setting up female packing companies, packing teams. Yeah. And it, it just seems to to fit. It's a it's a domestic affair, domestic activity, packing up not just the smalls, but all the household items. And I'm not quite sure why it has never taken off to a greater extent. So throughout the industry, I'd like to see much, much more involvement for young women and then climbing their way up the ladder into management and into sales and so on. Yeah. It was good at Transuro. We had a, a couple of female packers, but particularly on the sales and estimating side, we had two or three very successful female reps, if you like. So it can be done, it should be done, and I, that's what I would like to see changing even faster than it already is. Now, you mentioned earlier that the companies that you were involved with diversified. Do you think removal companies today should diversify into different areas? I'm not sure I'd use the word should. I think it's, yeah, it's the prudent thing to do because... Having too many eggs in the one basket yeah. can be very, very dangerous. And of course, there are quite a few already who have either moved, moved on from their original domestic moving service, they've got into commercial moving, business moving. Yeah. Self-storage, of course, is another big one. Shredding is also another one. Shredding, absolutely, yes. And of course, if we go way, way back before before our time, even before my time. Undertakers, coal merchants and yep. removers, yep. according to the seasons. So that says it really, doesn't it? Yeah. It's one of those industries where, yeah, you need to have fingers in more than one pie. So, yes, I'm, I'm definitely in favour of that. And it might not be for everybody. Some may prefer just to specialise in one arm or another, but yeah. I think it is the sensible thing to do. And I, at North American, when we developed the company in that way, I actually found it very refreshing, invigorating. Personally, we would hire in people with a proven track record in that, well, as with those four BA cargo salespeople. Yeah. And when we set up the electronics storage and distribution, we hired in people with already with experience in that area. And it, it's very refreshing. And they bring new ways of doing things and we learn from each other, quite apart from actually expanding the company. So yeah, it, it's it's a good thing to do. So what advice would you give yourself just starting out in the industry again? Um, I think 
one of those one of those points that I mentioned about honesty and fair dealing. Yeah, being fair with one's colleagues, or if you're in management with the the team, the workforce. That's absolutely critical. If you are starting out in the industry, then as I learned, there is nothing, nothing better, more beneficial than getting that grounding in what actually happens on the front line, understanding what the guys go through. Because in later management, they will see through you if you don't actually know what's going on and what you're talking about. So even if you join a company in, let's say, in a, in a sales role, make it your business to find out what really goes on in the physical side of the business. Yeah. And of course, many a good company does that as part of their employee induction to make sure that people do understand what goes on. But whoever it may be, whether you're in accounts or sales or IT or whatever, really understand the grassroots of the business. So, yeah, that's that's my mantra. Where do you see yourself in the industry in the next five years? Mm. Where do you see yourself, Chris? Well, hopefully still going to a conference and clicking the shutter. <laughs> I, um, I've got a very, very good relationship with the Instad at BAR yep. in terms of the management of, of the database. And um, we've chatted several times about my future with that and how long I want to carry on with it. I doubt it'll be five years. I'm 75 now, so, you know, the old, the old grey matter still still works, but it does sometimes take me a little longer to work things out or develop new code. You'll know all about that. I don't need to tell you about it. <laughs> But, um, or, or even to go back and unpick something I did 10, 12 years ago and think, oh, how does that work? That's the worst. <laughs> it doesn't matter what age you are. Trust oh, me, good. that's the worst. Good. It's not just me then. No, no. that's reassuring. <laughs> so uh, I, I think very probably within, I wouldn't put a time on it, but maybe within a couple of years, you know, yeah. I will hand that over. I'll still say involved. In fact, uh, Scott Boost. In membership services at BIR yeah. is already starting to do bits and pieces within bits. He's learning. It's quite straightforward. You know, Microsoft Access, it's pretty easy to get hold of it. But I wrote it, so he's got to learn what I did. Yeah, he has to get inside of your head. Yes. <laughs> so that process has started. And um, yeah, I, I, I would say within a couple of years or so, I'll probably hang up my keyboard. Maybe not the camera straps, but, um, because on the social side of it, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's great just to catch up with everybody, slap on the back and have a beer or two, and with some relive old times. Um, yeah. And the industry? The industry, well, I'm, I'm really on the fence about some of the later developments, virtual surveys, uh, I'm not convinced. I know they brought tremendous economies, and call me old school, but I think there's enormous value in the personal face-to-face -face visit, not just 
from the point of view of accurately gathering all the all the information about the move, but just bonding with the customer instead of gathering it electronically. But there's no there's no question electronics uh, probably not AI itself, but electronics will play an even greater role. One of the things I I did six seven years ago with IAM was the development of the electronic inventory standard ISO one seven four five one. I was the technical author for that. Yeah, and that was in anticipation of the U.S. government, yeah, U.S. Customs decreeing that all data should be communicated electronically and in a common language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that was going to become part of um, U.S. government contracts, Department of Defense, and so on. So that's an example of the, the kind of electronic development that, that, yeah. that may take place. And maybe a rebirth of something something like OmniConnect, which was, as you said, I think, perhaps ahead of its time. Yeah. But um, you know, things have moved on. Going back, when I was running shipping desks, we had bills of lading, and there had to be one copy to go in the ship's bag to be presented when the ship arrived and a physical actual document stuff like that is is just a relic of the past so there's no doubt electronics will further streamline what we do and how we do it in exactly what way well crystal ball isn't it yeah totally the virtual surveys is an interesting one i think if you are doing virtual surveys just using like a facetime or a whatsapp video I know exactly where you're coming from. I'd rather have a personal visit. Mm. But then the systems like that Gerard uses, I think if you've got Gerard on the phone, he's a salesman, he knows how the system works, then I think they can be pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. So it depends on on, on what the solution is at the end and, and how often it's used and, and whether that salesperson can still get that rapport with the client over a video screen as they do face-to-face. Yeah, certainly. And of course, stating the obvious, massive economies for for the company. Yeah. Not just in personnel, but cars, travel, carbon footprint. But I mean, I remember, you know, I must have done hundreds of, of surveys way back, but the physical estimating process really, really hasn't changed. But, you know, going around houses and, and suddenly you spot a cupboard or yeah. a door that leads down to a cellar and then you find oh, a whole den down there or attics or garages and sheds yeah, and yeah. so on, which can easily be overlooked. So uh, another thing I tried was um, in the early days of speech recognition. Yeah. And we had, I think it was dragon naturally speaking was it something like that was it will be something like that yeah yeah and um i thought this this would be great you know to to go around instead of writing on a clipboard or a tablet for the estimator just to be able to dictate what they've seen and to have the system record it and i got hold of one of them trained it in my voice at home or in the office in a meeting room and it worked pretty well and so i did a demo to our sales team this is at transuro and there were 10 or a dozen people in the boardroom, something like that. And it all started off very well. And then somebody asked a question or made a joke and they all started laughing and it started recording this and the whole thing went. (laughs) 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 And then I realized, of course, 
a home is not a perfect environment. You've got probably kids crying or dogs barking yeah. and the postman comes to the door or whatever. Well, they don't do that these days, but, um, <laughs> but technology, a refinement of, of that, all these virtual aids, there's no question they are going to change the way we do things, except in the very front line. You've still got to go yeah. and pack stuff. Yeah. Can't get away from that. Yeah, even your Googles and your your Amazon Alexas and that, even they pick up things when you're not talking to them and start talking away in the background. Oh, yeah, but yeah. even we've played around with that on the software side because it's like if you're using the software to run your removal company, is it quicker to minimize what you're currently on and then go to another screen and start running some, some queries to get the data you want? Or is it quicker to just ask Google or Alexa? And have that built in. And we've actually found it quicker to ask Google and Alexa. Yeah. Yeah. So you can yeah. actually then build up the application so that Google and Alexa can communicate with your application and pull that data much quicker than it is by the time you've minimized screens and run the queries yourself. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Do you remember the digital pen, Chris? Oh, yes. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. Afraid I do. Yes. See, that was very, very good. I mm. believe Pickford's did take it up to a certain extent. Did they? Yeah, on their surveys. It was very, very good. Again, another one of these devices ahead of its time. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember it. We, we never tried it, but I, I was aware of it, certainly. Yeah. But as you say, it came and went. Mm. Mobile phones, you know, the, the early clunky old, I think it was a Motorola Transportable, which was basically like a shoebox and the, the handset clamped on the top of it. That's it. <laughs> At Transura, we had we had about ninety odd mobiles for which I was responsible, and we had a very good relationship with one of the main Vodafone agents was Talkland, not Talk Talk, and it was pretty much at the time that Susie Lamplew, the estate agent, went yeah. went missing, yeah, and we had several lady estimators, salespeople, so we worked with Talkland on. Tracking, yeah, which of course now any crime scene or whatever, well, apart from CCTV. So, and then now we've got tiny little Apple watches and so on, which can do virtually everything. So it's it's already touching our lives in many many ways, and the industry is not is not immune. Driverless vehicles, removal vehicles. Can you see a, a road train, driverless? Uh, I can, but I can't see it going more than 20 miles. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And fuels, fuel cells, hydrogen, yeah, electric. Very exciting times, actually, and I won't be around to see what happens in uh, 10, 20 years' time or beyond. But, um, yeah, there's no doubt that there is always change taking place, and it's um, some of it is very, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off, apart from your community cinema? Um, that's quite a big one. Photography yeah. is a, is a well, it's been a lifelong interest, right from doing my own developing at school in the darkroom. People used to wonder what I was up to in there, I think, but I was actually, <laughs> yeah, I was genuinely developing and fixing and so on. <laughs> So I've always done that, and I've, in the last six, seven years, I suppose, I've spent silly amounts of money on 
really, really, really good equipment. And I had very high resolution camera. And I, I put a certain amount on Facebook and just love bird photography in particular, yeah. a fairly variety. <laughs> and, and wildlife, I do landscape and so on. I'm something of a petrol head. My neighbours would probably say an extreme one. I've, I've had some very interesting cars and still have. So I follow motorsport quite seriously. Love that. I've always messed around on, on the water right. from a very, very early age. My father built a little dinghy in the front room of the house, then found he couldn't get it out through the door, so we had to take the window out. And I had a, had a yacht on the East Coast for 12 years, sailed in some lovely places. But um, 10, 12 years ago, I, I started getting a bit fed up with the, with the weather, so I took up narrowboating. Oh, yeah. I've done 18 trips now. Oh, nice. And I go once or twice a year with a, several, got a fairly regular crew. Yeah. Been all over the country. So, yeah, I love doing that. So photography, community cinema, motorsport, cats, DIY, gardening. Never a dull moment. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> oh, and of course, did I forget the BAR database? Sorry, Ian. Yes. <laughs> and finally, I like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? Oh. Um, hmm, several, but I'll <laughs> probably go right back to the beginning, which was my interview at Walkers of Northampton. It wasn't my very, very first interview, but it, it was my first successful one. And um, Roy Walker, the owner, was a quite flamboyant individual, long silver hair double-breasted pinstripe suit, big silk, spotted silk handkerchief sprouting out of the front pocket. You, you get the drift. Yeah, and yeah. I, think, I think he'd been in a director or producer of Amadramatics and so on, so quite flamboyant. <laughs> anyway, he was there behind his big executive desk and little old me in front, and he had one of these, well, a typical executive chair. And um, he was in full flow and gesticulating and waving his arms about and so on, leaning back. And then suddenly, whoa, over he goes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I managed to restrain my laughter. I thought, that's not going to get me the job. <laughs> Do I get up and help him? Uh, anyway, I managed to say sort of, deadpan while he um, composed himself and <laughs> dusted himself down and so on. But that was, and yeah, I did get the job. So um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he gave you that job, Chris, so you could keep hush about that. Maybe, maybe he did that on purpose, <laughs> his, his little somersault here. <laughs> so, uh, uh, any others? Um, well, yeah, when I was at Amatrans, um, or American Overseas as it was then, we had a contract with Phillips Petroleum, and there'd just been one of those almost annual coups out in Ghana, and they'd nationalised all the oil fields, and all the American expats had to get out. There was a local packing company, probably still is, Watson's of Accra, and they had a, a European manager, but he was on leave. So 
we were asked to send somebody out there to oversee the the exodus and i i got that job because i was operations and shipping and so on so i went out there and it was just absolutely chaotic i mean there's no one single incident uh, that lights were going on and off um, <laughs> everything was packed up in not conventional lift fans but huge oversized wooden wooden crates and they came along one day to one of the houses this old truck came belching smoke and came along and then you they started to offload them they put basically tree trunks under each of the cases and four or five guys each side and dropped them down on the ground and the truck went off so I thought, well, how the heck are they going to get those back on when they're loaded? And anyway, he came back a bit later. Actually, no, he didn't, because I said to the foreman, what, where's the truck? Uh, oh, the truck, him gone sick, him gone sick, etc. As as the truck <laughs> would do. But eventually it came back, and they sort of whistled, and these guys came off the street, and uh, there were six or eight each side of the pole, and they lifted up these, these cases and put them on the truck, and off they went away again. So. No that way. gave me a further insight into. I, I never suggested that to Transuro, as it were. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Never mind forklift, Paul. This is much cheaper. But, um, <laughs> um, so oh. it was a, an amusing little episode. <laughs> and I was Brilliant. staying in what had been the Intercontinental Hotel, which was now a shadow of its former self, very dilapidated. And I came back in one evening after being out with the office manager. And this. Uh, soldier jumped out of the bushes he was absolutely completely all sheets to the wind and um he grabbed my mustache and said uh, oh you beautiful mustache i want your mustache. and i thought he's gonna rip my mustache <laughs> and he got this old sort of british army 303 rifle across his front so i i wasn't about to argue with him or push him out of the way but <laughs> yeah um Oh, there are more and more incidents from that trip which I won't go into. <laughs> Life has had its 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 moments. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good, very good. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you giving up your time this morning to record this episode with me. Thank you very much for the invitation, Colin. You're very welcome. I wouldn't say I've cast pearls of wisdom, but um, uh, it's nice to recall my all my experiences over over the. <laughs> It's an amazing industry. Oh, the industry is wonderful, isn't it? Absolutely wonderful. It is. It's great fun, yes. yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you, Colin. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 77 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice and please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Chris Weymouth for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Chris. If you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me, so until next time, keep moving.